Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 17. And would you go ahead, if you're able and willing, to stand with me as we read the word together? Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Begins here, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for your goodness to us, your kindness. Thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would help me to share, God, uh, accurately uh, what you put on my heart, Lord, and that you would encourage us in the faith. We praise you and thank you for your son and for this time together. And, and we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated. How many of you guys have an old injury that you never took care of, right? So this is where I'm at right now. I uh, played baseball in high school and college. It was like my thing. I played baseball in the fall. I played, I played in the spring. I played in the summer. I did weight training and all sorts of uh, fun in the winter. And um, eventually I, I, I hurt my uh, joint here, the sternoclavicular joint. Um, and so I didn't know exactly what was wrong with it, and as a young guy, I thought, I'll just tough it out. I don't care. I'll just continue doing my thing, and um, uh, my kind wife told me, you should probably get it looked at before you're old, and it won't <laughs> get fixed anymore. So I thought, well, that's, that's wise, right? So I went into the doctor, and they're like, hmm, I'm not quite sure exactly what's going on there, and so they wanted some extra imaging. How many of you guys have had that extra imaging? X-ray... Uh, they looked at the x-ray, they're like, ah, I'm not really quite sure what's happening. Still, we want some more imaging. They wanted to see really what was going on. So I went in and I got like a little chest MRI, and I have arthritis in this joint, right? There's no cartilage. So I'm an old man right here in my body, <laughs> specifically. But I thought it was interesting. I mean, even, you know, doctors we hold in, in such high regard, there's things that they don't know unless they can see it more clearly. Even they don't know when they need to see it clearly. And I thought, you know, how many times in our lives we think we're experts on something uh, or we think we know what's going on, but we just don't see it clearly. We don't understand. We're kind of in the dark until the light is turned on and we can see. And, um, and as I, you know, as the Lord put this passage on my heart, I thought, you know, that was kind of like the perfect example because it's happening in my life right now, right? Uh, people living in darkness have seen a great light. And as we kind of begin in this passage, I wanted to set it up a little bit um, just, you know, context-wise, and I'm going to spend a little bit of time on geography as well. But previously, Jesus had just come from his baptism. He had come from his temptation in the wilderness, which involved uh, Satan coming to him and, and tempting him and Jesus responding with the word of God. Jesus um, had been, you know, previously baptized by John the Baptist, and John had been imprisoned. And so after this, uh, Jesus uh, had called his disciples. He began his teaching ministry, 
with the Sermon on the Mount following chapter four here. So this is kind of where we're at, the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the public ministry anyways. But I do want to spend some time on geography in this passage um, for a few reasons. You might think geography, I don't know. To me, geography's fun. I, uh, it's kind of a bragging point for me, but in fourth grade, I want our school geography be. So kind of a big deal, I don't know. Um, <laughs> and I never progressed beyond that. <laughs> but uh, there's, we read six verses today. Six short verses, and there's actually 12 references to geographical locations in these six verses. So it actually kind of dominates this section. So it's important, number one, because it's here, so we've got to deal with it. And every word that proceeds from the mouth of God is important. It's for us, for our edification, right? And so we want to understand, you know, why does the Lord put it here? And, and, and my second point on geography is that it helps us to understand that the Bible's not a book of mythology, right? The Bible's not a book of mythology. It's not a book of fiction. And a fiction, to help us distinguish fiction from reality, um, it's made up names, made up places, name, made up locations, made up worlds. And by including geography and precise geography, it helps us to understand that this is real. It's not Lord of the Rings. It's not Narnia. It's not even, you know, uh, in the Mormon uh, scriptures, they talk about historical counts in the Americas, and there's no archaeological evidence, the places aren't real. Um, so, you know, these extraordinary claims outside of reality aren't what happens here. What we have is real, places we can find, things that we dig up, uh, verified in the land and verified in, in accounts outside of the land, too. Um, but also understanding the location, the location or geography kind of sets the scene for us. It gives us a feel for what life was like. When I say in the mountains, then you might be thinking, man, I love going to the mountains. Or if I say by the, by the lake, you might be thinking, I actually kind of want to be by the lake right now. Um, if I say on the border, you probably think of border issues and conflicts. If I say by the temple, you think of a grand uh, religious setting. So geography helps us put put ourselves in their shoes, helps us to think uh, accurately, which is one of the benefits of going to Israel. Uh, so I would just encourage you, if you're still thinking about that, to check out that info meeting later. But also the geography in this passage, uh, outside of just rooting it in reality and helping put us uh, in the right scene, geography is often loaded with meaning, meaning uh, beyond just reading here. Um, so for instance, uh, when I say something like Silicon Valley, you think big tech industries. When I say Hollywood, you think of where stars are made and die. Um, uh, when I think of Vegas, you think of everything that's promiscuous and wrong with uh, our society, probably. And in a similar way, there's things laid out, geography in this passage, that have those kind of meanings that are foreign to us. And so it helps us to understand what's, what's going on here. But Jesus had left his hometown of Nazareth, and he headed a few miles north to Capernaum. Interesting here, it says that, you know, leaving Nazareth, he went to Capernaum. But he didn't just leave Nazareth. If you guys remember, uh, the people in Nazareth had actually tried to kill Jesus because uh, he was from Nazareth, uh, and he was in the synagogue one day, and, you know, he, he took the scroll of Isaiah, and he read out of the scroll, and and he closed it up, and it was about you know, bringing light to the people. 
and bringing healing to them. And he said, you know, today in your presence, this is fulfilled. And some people were, you know, wow, this is you know, great. Where did he learn to teach like this? And some people were like, isn't this the guy who lives right down the road? And then Jesus explained to them, you know, in the days of Elijah and Elisha, uh, they went and uh, blessed the Gentiles and not the Jews. And then the people in Nazareth got all angry at Jesus and they took him out to the cliff, uh, the hillside in, in Nazareth, and we're going to throw him off the cliff. And then Jesus just seemed to walk right out of that one, right? Um, so he left Nazareth <laughs> because uh, no prophet has honor in his own hometown. So he leaves Nazareth and um, he goes off into Capernaum. It's interesting. Jesus didn't go to the predominantly Jewish regions of Israel, regions isolated from exchange uh, with the outside nations. You would think uh, the location of Jerusalem would be uh, the prime place. If you want to be a religious leader, if you want to be somebody important, you should go to the capital, you should go to the place of the temple, you should go to Jerusalem. That's you know, kind of the obvious choice uh, for somebody who wants to be a famous religious person. Instead, Jesus went uh, north to a place bustling with all sorts of people who believed all sorts of different things. A people of mixed Jewish and Gentile blood, a people open to hearing the teaching of a new rabbi, willing to weigh it against experience, tradition, but most importantly, the word of God revealed in the law and the prophets. Capernaum, uh, and this gives us an evangelistic wisdom too. It's where are the people? Where, where are the people at? So Jesus went where the people were. So it's, it's helpful for us to not isolate ourselves up in the hills, but to be where people are, to be the light of the world, not you know, hidden under a bushel, but out for everybody to see. But Capernaum was a city located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. I've got a, a picture for you guys here. Um, you could go to Capernaum, and it's not inhabited today, uh, but they have ruins there. You can actually see where the ancient synagogue was there on the northern uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee. Um, it was a bustling place uh, with a fishing industry. So when Jesus was uh, recruiting his disciples, he recruited fishermen who were hard workers, uh, who often went without uh, success, uh, but this is where Jesus did a, a lot of his ministry was based out of Capernaum. After he had left Nazareth, he kind of made his hometown in Capernaum. Peter has a house there. There's actually a church uh, that they built over the location where they think Peter's house was. Uh, so if you go there today, you can actually see Capernaum. So Capernaum, it's a real place, uh, a real industry of fishing. And this is where Jesus uh, centered his ministry. Um, and so he says, Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, uh, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way of the sea. The way, uh, on the way of the sea. So the way of the sea, it's not island living, not a style of life. It's, uh, we're not talk talking about beach bums. It's a technical term. It's actually the name for an actual road. It was the main north-south highway from Damascus to Egypt. Uh, it, crosses the Rift Valley to the coast through the plains of Jezreel. Um, we can pull up a map, a map here and see uh, you know, what it looks like there. So kind of tough to see on this map, I'm realizing now. Um, the, the yellow lines are minor roads. Uh, the red lines are the main highways. So you can see on the right-hand side, there's the King's Highway that went from Damascus uh, and on, on the Transjordan side through uh, Moab and Ammon. 
But then from Damascus, there's a red line that goes, you know, kind of cuts diagonally and meets up with the ocean. Via Maris means, uh, it's Latin for the way of the sea. But that red line uh, crosses uh, or goes right along the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. So you have just the major uh, trade route going right through Capernaum there. Um, so it's an, it's an important road, uh, and it's one of the big reasons why Jesus did his ministry there. So anybody who wanted to come from uh, the region of Syria or wanted to come from Babylon or even as far as Medio-Persia or India would need to go uh, through the Via Maris along the Sea of Galilee and the city of Capernaum if they wanted to go to Egypt. So that was the way you went. That was the road you took. And so Jesus strategically placed himself there along the way of the sea. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali are some weird names. Um, apparently my mom, when she was uh, growing up, they had a dog named Zeb after Zebulun. So it's a good dog name, I guess. Uh, <laughs> But Zebulun naturally, two of the 12 tribes uh, or sons of Israel. Uh, when Israel came up out of Egypt, they divided the land into 12 different parts, and the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali received their lot in the northern region around the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee. Um, and then it says again here also, Galilee of the Gentiles. So Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, this location, this region, actually had a pretty large population. Uh, the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus was the governor of Galilee at one point. He records that there were 204 towns in the region of Galilee, each with a population of at least 15,000 people, meaning the region uh, sported a population of 3 million people. So there was a, a, a dense population in the area, and it was uh, fertile land. A lot of times when I think of Israel, I think of the wilderness, I think of Masada, I think of the Dead Sea. Um, but as you move north and into the land of Galilee, um, it's lush, it's verdant, it's fertile. Uh, it was an agricultural region, especially lower Galilee or southern Galilee uh, was that fertile land. The land to the north was a little bit more mountainous. But the Galileans were surrounded by and impenetrated by the Gentiles, which is why it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. To the west and to the southwest were the Palestinians, to the northwest were the Sidonians, Syrians to the north and northeast, to the, uh, to the east was the Decapolis with the Greeks, and to the south were the, the half-breed Samaritans. So we had this little Jewish pocket surrounded by people from other nations, that Gentile means of the nations. So, uh, interesting, the psalmist writing in, uh, of the Messiah in Psalm 22 says, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Galilee actually means circle. So it's a wheel and it's a circle. So uh, the idea of uh, strong bulls of Bashan. Uh, in, in ancient days, the region was called Bashan. Uh, if you remember when Moses came up out of Egypt and went to war with Og, king of Bashan, that was the region. It was the region that was later called Galilee. Galilee means encircled. So the idea that the people in opposition to us are surrounding us, these strong bulls of Bashan, is really just an accurate description of Galilee of the Gentiles, people surrounded by these Jews, surrounded by other people. And then those living in the land of the shadow of death. Now, certainly you think back to Psalm 23. It says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. 
Most of us on hearing about the shadow of death only think of it as being uh, symbolic to, you know, discouraging or depressing time in my life. And most certainly that is uh, uh, a proper application. But there's some profoundly deep things in terms of geography that actually happen in Galilee that Jesus does in order to make a statement in his ministry. The land of the shadow of death was a description of the region. Moving forward in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 17, uh, there was a moment when uh, Peter and, and, the, and Jesus and the disciples were all gathered together. And uh, Jesus asked them the question, you know, who do people say that I am? And people said, well, some people say this, some people say that. But Jesus said, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus, you know, said, you know, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Um, and, you know, your name is, you know, Peter, and on this rock uh, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Well, the, the place where this, where this happened was in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was north of the Sea of Galilee at the foot of Mount Hermon. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was previously called Panium. It's a city, it was a city dedicated to the god of the field, Pan, um, it was in the region of Bashan. Bashan means serpent. They called it the place of the serpent. It was thought of as a region of rebellion. Northern Israel was often a place of idolatrous apostasy and rebellion. Um, and then Mount Hermon, Hebrew Karmon, means destruction. Mount Hermon was a, a cult haven with many sites dedicated to the gods of Baal and Pan. It was thought of even as some, by some as the location or the place where the gates of the underworld were. So in entrance to the underworld, it was at Mount Hermon. Uh, it was contrasted with Mount Sinai as well. You know, Mount Sinai was in the south. It was a place of God's blessing. Um, but many considered Mount Hermon uh, and perceived it as a place where like demons come out of, where demons spawn from, because it was the gates of the underworld. So when Jesus said, the gates of hell will not overcome the church, that was you know, where it was. It was right at the base of Mount Hermon where people kind of thought of the gates to the underworld. And Jesus was making a declaration about his divinity and the power that he had. So um, I got a picture of Mount Hermon. So if you want to take a look at it over here, a photo. This is actually from Tiberias. So from Tiberias on the shore, you're looking through uh, the, past the Sea of Galilee and the city of Capernaum would be right, you know, right above the boat on the shore. But then towering over is Mount Hermon. And if you think of Hermon as, or, or Bashan as the region of the serpent, uh, you think of Hermon as a place of destruction in opposition to Sinai of God's blessing, then it's always going to be towering over you. It's a cult site where they worship other gods. It's always, it's always there. Every time you look up, you're in its shadow in a ways. So, um, which makes... The next thing that happens in Matthew 17, um, even more interesting, the transfiguration of Jesus. Remember, he had, right after the declaration that you know, Jesus is the Son of God and, and the gates of hell comment, Jesus takes his people up, or his disciples, up to this high mountain, which is Mount Hermon, and Jesus is transfigured before their eyes. Jesus took Peter and John up there, and um, on this 
site, this cult haven, Jesus is revealed in his glory, and the Father says, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's like a statement in defiance of other gods that this is, this is my location, right? Not just Mount Sinai in the north, but this is mine. What the enemy thought he had beforehand is going to be mine. So there's like a powerful statement happening here that God had declared, even the Father from heaven, that this is my true son. This is my true son. So geography, it does, it plays a huge role in scripture. It helps us to more fully grasp, to appreciate what's going on, uh, understanding that the way of the sea is a road, understanding that Galilee means encircled by the Gentiles, that the the land of the shadow of death is a, a picture of just cult worship and Hermon being right over there, and then just understanding even later on in the transfiguration what Jesus was, was really doing. So, but it's here in, in the shadow of death that Jesus begins his public ministry. And what does he do? He begins by preaching. The, the Greek word is kerusain. It's a herald who's proclaiming, uh, making a proclamation on behalf of the king. And in this instance, it is the king's very own son. You know, though Jesus did many miracles, and in so doing, proved himself to be sent by God. These miracles were signs. Preaching is more than just showing signs. Preaching is laying out the evidence. Preaching is demanding people to come to a necessary conclusion. Jesus uh, comes and he comes to tell me, he comes to tell you that it is necessary to repent. It's necessary in order to be right with God to have a change of mind. It's necessary to have a change of heart. It's necessary for you to have a change of will. It's necessary to be born again of the Spirit. For the kingdom of God is near, and the king, king demands you to make yourself ready to meet him. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So sometimes we hear people make demands or people preach to us, and we think, you know, who died and made you king, <laughs> Right? Why, why, is Jesus, why is Jesus doing this? Why is he going around speaking to people, speaking what sometimes when people are preaching, speaking at people? Well, he came to, first and foremost, fulfill God's will. The first thing we have to understand is that Jesus didn't come on his own. Jesus was sent. Jesus was sent by the Father. You know, a large section of this passage that we read this morning is a quotation from the Old Testament. It's the the prophet Isaiah. This is from Isaiah chapter 9, you know, verses 1 and 2 is where this this, this, uh, quotation is from. And I think it's interesting, you know, that Jesus is quoting from Isaiah, recognizing and declaring to us that this thing was what God wanted to accomplish all along. You know, in, in 1946... They made this incredible discovery, the caves of Qumran in southern Palestine. Uh, There, the ancient works of the Essene sect were discovered in a system of caves. I'm sure you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls before. The Essenes were a strict Jewish sect who believed that the religious national Jewish system had become corrupt, and so they practiced the religion in the wilderness east east of Jerusalem. They made copies of important texts, some scripture, some not scripture, And the conditions in the caves worked out remarkably well for the preservation of documents, constant low temperature, lack of light, low humidity, main attributes for preserving these scrolls for some 2,000 years. Among these works was found the great Isaiah scroll. 
The Isaiah scroll contained all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah, which was originally written in 700 BC, but this copy of Isaiah was dated back to 125 BC. They used uh, radiocarbon dating to date this back accurately to 125 BC. It was an incredible find. Uh, Previously, the oldest copies, I mean, we don't have the original autographs of of any of the texts of scripture. What we have is copies because the originals break down with time, so they had to be copied. But the the oldest copies of uh, the Old Testament that we had previously uh, were the Masoretic texts, which were were dated to about the ninth century, the 800s. And so to find these Dead Sea Scrolls containing the whole Isaiah scroll dating back a thousand years was a really good chance for us to look and see if there was any corruption that took place in the copying process. Um, But in in reality, they found a high degree of integrity between the Qumran scrolls and the oldest copies of the Masoretic text. A Hebrew scholar, Miller Burroughs, uh, wrote this. He said, of the 166 words in Looking particularly at Isaiah 53, there are only 17 letters in question. And 10 of these letters are simply a matter of spelling, which doesn't affect the sense. Four more are letters or are minor stylistic changes, such as conjunctions. The remaining three letters are in the word light, which is added in verse 11 and doesn't affect the meaning greatly. So there's a a high degree of integrity in the copying going forward. And um, I just want to read Isaiah 53 because just knowing that this was dated to this copy 125 years before Christ really uh, should turn the light on for us to like, whoa, it's not just, you know, Drew or Ken up here just saying things like, like that it's accurate. This is, these are secular scholars um, saying, yep, this is 125 years BC. So listen to what Isaiah 53 actually says. And this is the that scholar's translation of the Dead Sea Scroll, Isaiah Great Scroll. Uh, It says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form, he had no majesty that we should look at him, no attractiveness that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one from whom people hide their faces, and we despised him and we did not value him. Surely he has borne our sufferings and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken and struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities, and the punishment that made us whole was upon him, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, as a sheep that, uh, that is before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. From detention and judgment he was taken away, and who can think about his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. Then they made his grave with the wicked, and with rich people his tomb, although he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet the Lord was willing to crush him, and he made him suffer. Although you make his soul an offering for sin, and he will see his offspring, and he will prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will triumph in his hand. Out of the suffering of his soul, he will see light and find satisfaction. And through his knowledge, his servant, the righteous one, will make many righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, 
will I allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and made intercession for their transgressions. So that's 125 years before Christ. That's when the copy was. And you read that and you're like, it's talking about Jesus, <laughs> right? It's so obviously talking about Jesus. And we, we know that it was written before Christ. We know it was. That's powerful, right? That's a powerful reality. It's a powerful statement to the integrity of Scripture because you guys who have read Isaiah 53 in your Bibles, you're like, that's the same thing that's in my Bible, right? That's integrity. And that's powerful, and it speaks to the, the reality that God knows what he's doing. He sees the end from the beginning, and he's already had a plan for that. And if you want to, you can actually go and read uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. They actually have a website where you can go where I pulled the picture from. It's dss.collectionsimj.org. It's up there if you want. You can go later to, um, uh, you can watch the sermon later and kind of like take a picture of it or something. You can actually go and look at all the different Dead Sea Scrolls, all the pictures of it, and then they have translations in there as well. So it's really, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. To me, it's fascinating. I don't know about you guys. But we see that God had already planned to send Jesus. Jesus didn't decide to become God. He is the eternal Son of God, wrapped himself in flesh in order to come and speak with us face to face, that we might perceive God, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might understand how much God cares for us, that he planned from ancient days to volunteer himself to death on a cross for you. This wasn't God just kind of feeling it out, calling an audible. This was the plan. We see that God had a plan for sending Jesus. And that's nice, but what about me? What about me? I mean, we look at this prophetic reality. Does God have a will or a plan for my life? He has foresight. He sees things from the end to the beginning. How much does he see you and me? How concerned is he for you and me? How accidental are the moments of my life? It, was, it reminds me of how I became convinced that I needed to, to ask out who is now my wife. Um, I remember that I was, you know, fasting. I was praying before the Lord for his will for my life. And how many of you guys have prayed and didn't think anything would happen? Yeah, you prayed, you fasted about something. You didn't think it would happen because we are people of little faith, right? Just like me. And um, I came to church here and I ran into her between services. It was in the foyer out front there. Um, in between services, there's usually dozens of people, maybe a hundred people out there, and there was nobody there. It was so weird. It's like a miracle. It's like the parting of the Red Seas or something like that, <laughs> right? It was just me and her kind of like walking towards each other, and I was distinctly aware that this was like weird. Like, where is everybody? Why is there only us two? Um, and, you know, when you kind of feel like you're being carried along by the Lord into the meeting, sometimes I look back and it seems more like a lamb being led to the slaughter. <sighs> I'm, I am the spotless lamb. I'm the innocent party, obviously, <laughs> in all things in my marriage. No. But I, I realized that the moment wasn't accidental, that it's like God had a plan for my life. The good for good, but also, what about those bad moments? Is he still God? The heavy loads that we carry every day, the crushing circumstances that lead you to feel as if you're dwelling in the shadow of death, the Mount Hermans in your life that are always there, whenever you lift up your eyes, it's always looking down on you, 
and all you feel like is there's only destruction that I can see whenever I lift up my eyes. My question for you is, do you believe that Christ is sitting in glory atop that mountain? Are you willing to lift up your eyes to the crest of the mountain and say, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, and he will not let my foot slip, and he watches over me, and he does not slumber. We get wrapped up in blaming God for our rough circumstances, trying to convince him to conform his will for my life to my will for my life. And we forget the greater concern that God has is for my own will, that my will would be his will. God has a will for you. God desires that you think and feel and act his will. He's less concerned with my stack of to-dos on my desk. He's more concerned with who sits at my desk and what's on my heart and mind. And I often think, you know, what is God's will for my life? And sometimes people ask me, what is God's will for their life? And what comes to mind is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will for your life. It has things to do with what's inside of me, with my mind, my heart, my will. So we see truly God's main prophetic concern for your life isn't always necessarily these moments, though those, I feel like some of these moments, good and bad, are ordained by God. But God's prophetic concern for your life is that you repent, that you conform your will, your mind, your heart, your emotion, your purposes, your drive, your desires to be in line with his. Repent and hear, for the kingdom of God is near. So Jesus came, one, to fulfill God's will, to dispel darkness, so that those who are dwelling in darkness can see a great light. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And so, what's going on in Israel? What you know, kind of darkness are they living in? And you know, they were living with all sorts of different kind of threats happening at the same time, all sorts of different forms of darkness. The first and, you know, more immediately threatening was military threat, military concerns. Um, those who dwelt in the north were on the road or the highway where Egypt and Babylon or Syria would uh, make war with each other. So there's always armies uh, marching through their land. It made the Galileans a resolute people, a strong people, uh, a resilient people, but they were under military threat constantly. The Babylonians, Assyrians, Persians, in their day it was the Romans, and now in northern Israel they are still under threat, threat from Syria, you know, Iran, and Russia on the northern border. There's that military threat, that kind of darkness that like clouds over them. There's, uh, in addition to military threat, there's the proximity of worship. I mean, they're in the north. We have this pagan cult site, you know, overshadowing us, and they can't see the temple. <laughs> they're far from Jerusalem. They're far to the north. That, that pagan worship is like right on top of them, and God is sort of far away. There's cultural confusion. There's a mixture of peoples. There's, there's Jews, 
there's Gentiles. There's this high-speed traffic of ideas and information come along, coming along the way of the sea. It creates confusion. This is true, this is true, this is true, this is true. And you think, what is true, really? And it gets, things get foggy, things get dark. And then in light of that cultural confusion, there's individual ambiguity. If you're not quite sure what exactly is true, then what is my purpose? What does God expect of me? And it's into these different threats of darkness that a great light is shown to them. Um, this is a rhetorical question, but have you ever been sleeping in a dark room and somebody turns on the, turns on the light so rudely? <laughs> right? What's your first reaction? Somebody turns on the light. Temptation is to yell at them. <laughs> Turn the light back off. But it's to cover yourself back up with the blankets, turn your face away from the lights, cover your ears a little bit too. Um, my, my kids are just getting old enough now to where when I go in the room and turn on their light, they're just like, oh no, dad, stop that. Um, it's weird. It, it's kind of weird. Have you ever thought how initially disorienting the light can be if you're dwelling in darkness? It's painful. I mean, I just you know got up this morning and it was dark, and I went into the bathroom, and I flipped on the light, and you, know, you, you squint your eyes, and you kind of put your head down until you can adjust to the light. But it's actually a little bit painful when that light comes on. It's disorienting. Where exactly am I? I can't really see things like I thought I could. But though it's initially disorienting, it's eventually incredibly helpful. The light can be initially disorienting, but eventually helpful. And I think we can take this, uh, this reality spiritually in this passage as well. We can look at this, those four reasons that the people were dwelling in darkness and we can apply them to our own lives. You know, the idea of being under military threat. You know, how many of us worry about military operations? Uh, we're relatively safe here in, in the United States. We feel safe often, but we, you know, we read the news about what, thing, what things are happening in other parts of the world and we can become distressed of wars and, or as Jesus said, wars and rumors of war. But we have to understand and we have to know that though these are terrible and is an actual threat, that there's another war that's taking place. It's a bigger war with more important implications that cannot be seen with the eye. Implications going into eternity. You know, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and rulers in the heavenly realms. So listen to Jesus, who pleads this with us that there's a kingdom of God that is near. We worry about these other earthly kingdoms. We forget about the most important kingdom, the kingdom of God that lasts for all eternity. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Be concerned with him who can kill the body and the soul by throwing it into hell. We have to be concerned with this. This is a greater concern, a greater military threat in our lives. And so when we accept the king and become a part of his kingdom, we realize that there is an eternal certainty and security in that that can't be taken away. Um, the, the second one was with proximity of worship, that, that threat. We feel you know, like this cult site is right over us. We feel like we're in the thick of all sorts of different religions. And sometimes we feel far from God. We, we feel like there's other people that are closer to God than me. We, there's other people that have grand visions of God, but I haven't, who have great experiences with God. But what about me? Well, just to let you know, 
I've never had a grand vision of God or of Jesus. Just so you know, <laughs> right? That's not a prerequisite for, <laughs> for sharing the word of God and believing on Jesus Christ. I haven't seen Christ in my dreams. And I don't always feel like he's right there with me. But I trust his word. I mean, he, I, I, I remember when, you know, doubting Thomas, right? He's like, I won't, believe, I won't believe that Jesus is resurrected from the dead unless I put my hands in his side and feel the holes in his hands. I won't believe it until I see that. And then Jesus showed up and let him touch and, and feel, had a show and tell moment with him. But Jesus said something powerful. You believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. I think I, I, I hold on to that in my heart. It's like, Maybe I haven't had a grand vision of Jesus Christ in my dreams or in the daytime. But Jesus says, blessed are those who believe and have not seen. So I, I believe that there's a greater blessing for those of us who have not seen those things. God blesses those who believe in him by faith, not because of a grand vision or revelation. God's looking for those who, who are faithful to him based on trusting what he's revealed in his word, especially about his son. It's reasonable because his word is consistent within itself, it's consistent with the outside world, and it's consistent in my own experiences, in our experiences. I found the Bible to be consistent, coherent, grounded in reality, and when Christ came into my life and I followed him, he's not led me astray. Christ has not led me astray. I've followed him, I've put it into practice, I've experienced him, I've tasted his goodness, and I know that he is true. I know that he is good. Some people think that Christianity has been tried and found wanting. The reality is that Christianity has been found difficult and left untried. The other concern is about the influx of information. What is true, what is not true. Contradictory information barraging us from every angle. I mean, I just want to know how much coffee and chocolate is good for me so that I can keep on doing it as much as I want, okay? So can we just end on a good study, <laughs> right? I'll just hold on to it. And if a new study comes, I'll be like, no, 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 peer-reviewed. Doesn't change, okay? <laughs> the truth is constant. The eternal God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is not like me. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't perceive one thing as true one moment and then realize he was wrong the next. God never changes. So the creator God who spoke the universe into existence, who made the tongue and the ear, has revealed to himself to us by his word. It's not hard for him to preserve and share his word with us, to share his thoughts with us. It's hard for us to listen. And then lastly, do you wrestle with your own place and what God's will in your life is? In, the, in a confusing and confused culture, not knowing what is true and what is false, how do I know, you know, number one, if I have any value, and how do I know what God really expects of me? How do I know these things? If, this, you know, the circumstances are always shifting. The reality is we've got to place our trust in the word of God, which is unchanging. The word of God that says that we have value because we are made in the image of God. We have intrinsic value, regardless of how great we think we are or how we fall short in different situations. We have value. We hold on to the word of God. 
I mean, he sent Jesus Christ to die for me. He gave me his spirit. I must be special to him in that regard and loved by him dearly. And then how do I know what he expects of me? Well, the prophet Micah tells us exactly what God expects of us. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Humbly there's the adjective, but the expectation, the requirement, is that we would walk with God. To walk with God. The expectation isn't just to do justice and to be a nice person, merciful and compassionate. The third point here is that we would walk humbly with your God. That we would walk with him. It's not good enough to just be a good person, a just person. We are required to walk with God. The psalmist writes, your word is a light to my path, a lamp unto my feet. John begins his gospel by writing that Jesus is the word, the logos. Jesus is the word of God. He's the light of the world. He's the vocal expression of God, the exact representation of his being. Colossians tells us that it is through the son of God that all things came into being. When God spoke, light came into the world and he revealed its effects. Christ the Son is the lamp, the source of light and life. Sometimes we feel like we can't see clearly in this world. We can't see clearly in our lives. We're groping around in the dark. We're feeling our way through life. Sometimes we think that we ought to just search the Bible to find the correct formula for good living. But the reality is that we don't need just good advice or a formula from God. We need God himself. The good news is that God gave himself to us freely in his son, Jesus Christ. If your word is a light to my path and a lamp unto my feet, realize that Jesus is the word of God. We need Jesus to be our light. We need Jesus to be the lamp to our feet. We need him. <laughs> we don't need just his good things. We need him, the light bearer. So we're left with that decision, you know, to repent, to not to repent, to come holy and truly before the resurrected and glorified Christ, accepting his free gift of salvation through faith, or to say, no, thank you. And this decision of ours is of eternal significance because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We don't know when we're going to see Jesus, but we will see him. Will it be in a good setting or not? At the end of the day, we look over this passage together. We see God is imploring us as a people living under the shadow of an evil age and inevitable death to come, as a people for whom the great light of Christ has been switched on. What do you do when the light of Christ is switched on in your life? Do you cover yourself with the blankets and say, no, go away? Or do you sit under the light, orienting your eyes to see clearly in that light and embrace it? Do you behold the sun, saying, the Lord is the light to my path, a lamp to my feet? Will you walk humbly with your God? A verdict is required on your part, knowing that in the eyes of Christ, by saying no, we're rejected in his eyes, but also by ignoring, we're rejected. We cannot be passive. Christ must be actively embraced. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. 
on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light is dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. I want to end our time together uh, reading my, probably my favorite Christian song, the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. There's a plug about the great father, so it's kind of like Father's Day, you know, too. It fits. But I've had to, you know, think through the, the words in this song just in my own life. And I just find its depth helpful. But the writer here says, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. Be thou my wisdom, and thou my true word. I ever with thee, and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great father, and I thy true son. Thou in me dwelling, and I with thee one. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for your kindness to us. Thank you, Lord, for the dads in our life, Lord. Um, may you just bless them, and may we be a blessing to them, God. And um, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us, Lord, to repent. Those of us who don't know you, Lord, to turn to you as we've seen a great light. And those of us who do know you, Lord, as we you know, look over our hearts and our minds and the way we think, Lord, what is our will, our desires, our passions, God, that we would just seek to conform to yours, Lord, that we would understand what is your will for my life, God, and that we would repent, God, and conform to you, Lord. We just pray for this grace. We pray for this mercy, God, and we thank you, God, for your kindness. All in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.